Hello, welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Hi, this is Jerome Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theater Company. Uh, welcome to our podcast series, Into the Fire, a podcast on all things theatrical. Burning Coal's uh, guests today are two um, very esteemed uh, scholars in the field of astronomy and um, uh, knowledgeable about the subject of our next play, uh, which is uh, Galileo. Uh, first, we have Doug Lively, who's a NASA um, JPL Solar System Ambassador, uh, a leader within the Raleigh Astronomy Club, one of the key planners of Astronomy Days over at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. And they tell me he is an amazing astronomy educator as well. So uh, that's uh, straight from the mouth of the Natural Sciences Museum. And also with us is Alan Rich, who is mostly retired, but a, a chemist, um, served uh, serves now as a, a solar system ambassador uh, with the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory at uh, Caltech. Um, and in addition to, to the public outreach and education services of that program, he facilitates NASA technology spinoffs into the field of diagnostic medicine and knows a great deal, um, as does uh, Doug, about uh, Galileo and about the um, impact of Galileo's work. So, gentlemen, first of all, welcome to both of you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And um, let's uh, start just finding out a little bit about yourselves. Uh, you know, I think most uh, young, well, it used to be boys, but I imagine the women are now thinking uh, uh, for the shooting for the stars these days too. But uh, when, when you're young, you think, uh, I want to be an astronaut. I want to go into space. Uh, uh, but you guys actually did some of that, or at least you worked in that field. So uh, let's start um Alan, with you, if you don't mind, just tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and how you got started in this very interesting and unique field. Uh, well, I'm a chemist. And, well, first off, let me say that you've got a, a good mix of people here. Doug is an astronomer, and I'm not. Uh, I do I do good to find the full moon on a cloudless <laughs> night outside, and Doug can take telescopes apart and put them back together and design them. So we're we're a little bit different that way. I'm. Uh, interested in spacecraft and uh, orbital dynamics and space flight physics and uh, actual, you know, the rocketry, the rocket science part. And that's usually uh, when I do presentations for uh, JPL, sort of got that focus to it rather than uh, astronomy focus. I'm uh, a lifelong scientist, uh, analytical chemist. I've had uh, uh, some dealings in aerospace as well. Um, we had a uh, Google Lunar X Prize team that, um, um, that was um, the first people that's not NASA or a space agency to put a, a robot on the moon. Uh, we had one started at NC State, uh, one of the about 15 teams around the world. I was involved in that. And it went, all of them went defunct and nobody won. <laughs> but I, I uh, jumped ship from that and went to one in Germany. Uh, and they're an active company now involved in uh, uh, planetary uh spaceflight systems. So um, that's, this is, I've been, this is what I've been interested in and doing all my life. Uh, some, uh, some uh, 
derivative of chemistry and laboratory science, uh, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, how did that happen? Was that something your one of your parents was involved with, or did you have a really good teacher? Or how how did you get involved in that field? It's just always been something that uh, you know. Look at compare me and my son. My son has been a musician since he was uh, crawling, and that's what he's been interested in. And uh, and I've just been in, interested in science uh, all my life. And then when the uh, there was a the solar system ambassador program came up from uh, the Jet Propulsion Labs at NASA in 2000. Been doing this for 22 years with them, and it's been a it's been a, a great ride. I've uh, gotten to work with people like John Glenn a couple of times, uh, Sally Ride, uh, met a lot of astronauts, and been to the rocket launches and uh, NASA centers, and it's just been a lot of fun, a lot of opportunities. And uh, because what I really enjoy doing is uh, public education and outreach. Um, in particular, my things that I, the slant that I like to put on things is my, um, uh, you know, rocket science and, and uh, space flight physics and orbital dynamics, things like that are really hard to explain to people uh, without calculus, especially mm -hmm. younger people. And I like to try to figure out ways to do presentations to uh, especially younger kids to get them um, interested in that and to help them understand it without having to go into uh, calculus and, <laughs> and heavy duty physics. So uh, I, uh, I really enjoy this. I've been enjoying it for a long time. One of the, the things that um, the play uh, that we're doing uh, shows in, in full force is the, um, the teacher uh, within uh, Galileo. Um, and uh, we, we watch him uh, as he, as he educate, educates and ultimately, I think, on some level disappoints a young, uh, young person in his life. Um, let's switch over to, to Doug for a second. Doug, uh, wh where are you originally from and how did you get involved with NASA? Okay, so uh, I actually, uh, in the, in the uh, early 1950s, my wife, my, uh, my, 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 sorry, my parents actually moved down to Cocoa, Florida, which is about uh, 20 miles uh, downrange from the Cape. And wow. so I grew up in the shadow of the, uh, the uh, 1960s space program and got mm -hmm. to see all of the uh, all the launches. I believe it or not, we we just had the some uh, the 60th anniversary, I think, of Alan Shepard's famous launch. Uh, I was actually standing out on a, on a, on a elementary school playground watching that that launch um, a bit way back in the, in the 1960s. And then I got to see all the astronauts, like much like Alan, I got to see all the astronauts, John Glenn, you know, uh, everyone that was, you know, uh, super famous in those, in those days, but growing up in the shadow of the space program, you know, uh, literally, uh, one night they had a, a test at the Cape of the Thor rocket engines. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they basically, uh, it shook our house 20 miles away. And uh, I was just hooked <laughs> at an early age yeah. on all things uh, space and all things related to astronomy. At a young age, I got, a, I got my first telescope uh, and uh, spent almost every night looking at the heavens. Um, I had my first uh, public observing program with my fourth grade class. <laughs> mm -hmm. and we were actually looking at sunspots in those days uh, at, at a daytime uh, observation session. So through that, uh, through all my life, I've always had a passion for astronomy and 
when uh, we moved up here in, into North Carolina, I met up with the Australia, Raleigh Astronomy Club back, uh, goodness, 25 years ago now. And uh, I was a complete novice. Didn't re I really couldn't, you know, you know, punch my way out of a paper bag with respect to finding any of the, of the night sky objects. And through that relationship with Raleigh Astronomy Club, it kind of nurtured my passion for astronomy. Um, and I began growing in my abilities to recognize, you know, where planets were, positions in the moon, understanding the phases of the moon, understanding the moon's effect on Earth. And then from that, you know, went on to, uh, I uh, met uh, uh, several people. I met Alan many years ago. Uh, and then uh, about three years ago, I finally actually became an, a NASA solar system ambassador because I, one of the things I like to do is educate other people with respect to what's happening in space. Uh, again, and as Alan kind of noted, I'm mainly more from, the, uh, from astronomy, the observational standpoint. I'm looking more at, uh, at deep sky structures and objects, uh, not only in our solar system, but away and outside of our galaxy. So um, a lot of my emphasis and focus uh, is on educating the public with respect to, um, you know, Milky Way objects, uh, extragalactic objects, um, things like that. So, so just to just to go to the very basics of uh, the conversation, um, what is astronomy? If you had to define it simply to a child, for instance, how how would you describe? How would you uh, define astronomy? So very simply, I would just say it's the study of objects that are outside Earth's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and that's what we do. We, we study those objects, things like stars, planets, uh, moons, mm -hmm. galaxies, things like that. Meteors. Uh, and um, <clears throat> um, Galileo um, is uh, obviously a, a pivotal figure. Um, uh, Alan, um, you you have a lot of knowledge of um, the the impact of of Galileo's work and and of subsequent uh, uh, scientists and uh, mathematicians uh, such as uh, uh, you know that followed in his his path. Can you talk just a little bit about um, some of the impact of of Galileo's uh, work on on your work or on the the work of uh, um, scientists and and others uh, since since the 1600s. Yeah, I think the thing that interests me most from my background is is again ask the same question to Doug, and he's going to give you a the same a, a totally different answer from a totally different viewpoint. But from mine, it's got to be the uh, Galileo spacecraft. You know, uh, th some of the things that Galileo did. He was a pioneer in astronomy. He was the first to see the Galilean moons of Jupiter, and his work with tele the primitive early telescopes and, and that sort of thing. That's that's Doug's field. But um, he discovered these four biggest moons of Jupiter and the Galilean moons, which you can almost see with your naked eye mm -hmm. and with a crappy little pair of binoculars, you can see them. Mm -hmm. And we named JPL named uh, a really groundbreaking one of our best space missions, spacecraft missions ever, uh, the Galileo spacecraft after Galileo. And um, it was the first spacecraft we made to go into orbit around one of the outer planets. 
It had a, a lifespan of about 13 years, and it was only supposed to go for about seven years, which is what JPL does. <laughs> We're uh, famous for putting robots on Mars that are supposed to last for 90 days, and they end up lasting 10 years. Um, and the Galileo was uh, a similar thing, and it, it gave us uh, groundbreaking information uh, about the, these, especially these four big moons of Jupiter, which may be the only places in the solar system that we find life other than Earth. They've got oceans, they've got water. Um, and as I said, it was the first spacecraft ever to order uh, to go into orbit around a um, um, an outer planet. Um, it was launched not on a rocket; it was launched on uh, a space shuttle, the uh, space shuttle Atlantis in 1989. Uh, just a, a really fantastic mission. It took years to get there, and uh, you know, named after Galileo. So that's uh, that's my um, that's my my personal connection to the name Galileo. The, the play talks a, a great deal about the, the conflict between um, um, practical versus um, uh, raw research, I guess, uh, which is a, a conflict within all of the sciences. Um, I guess my, uh, my brother-in-law for years was the Dean of Science at MIT and he um, was constantly uh, having to juggle those two uh, uh, issues, and he later went on to to head a, a foundation out in California that's uh, objective was to raise funds for uh, um, raw research. You know, uh, and he found that over and over again, the people wanted to put their money and their name in in um, specific things. You know, they wanted to be able to say we funded this. Um, not uh, we funded someone who was looking for something and the something might or might not become something important. And, uh, and yet Galileo's argument, I think what was at least uh, in from Brecht's uh, point of view was that the raw research is ultimately the thing that, um, that is most beneficial to humankind because it acknowledges what, that we don't know uh, everything, you know, that if you set out looking for one specific thing, you might find that, but you're not going to find any of the other things that perhaps that, uh, that you don't know exist. And, and it sounds like that that mission um, that you're describing uh, uh, was uh, was an example of that. Are there? Can you give examples? Just uh, just may, maybe one or two of of things that have been discovered uh, through a mission such as the one you just described um, that that maybe now are are useful to people or or practical in people's lives. Sure. Uh, one comment you were talk uh, that I'd like to make on what you just said. Even within JPL, there's there's politics and there's infighting over who gets to use the limited amount of money. Do you want to send a spacecraft to Pluto or do you want to study one of these moons of Jupiter for and see if there's life there? But I think that um, one of the big focuses for what JPL does is to do these interplanetary robotic explorations and look for clues and, and to figure out the, the, put the puzzle together on how the solar system got to the state that it is right now. And we're finding all of these exoplanets around other stars. It seems like maybe every star like our sun that is, uh, is born has naturally some kind of planetary system around it. So missions like Galileo, when you 
put together the puzzle on how our solar system became what it is. Mm -hmm. How did these bodies of these moons of Jupiter that Galileo uh, looked at and saw these ice volcanoes and oceans under the uh, an icy crust, how did that happen? And then we extrapolate that information to these exoplanets we're finding. And then you can narrow down your search for, uh, well, you know, that's a really good candidate to have life on it, this planet that's 20 light years away from here. Um, so you're, you're, you're understanding how the universe is put together, how solar systems are put together. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Galileo spacecraft was, uh, had a, put a lot of pieces of that, that puzzle together. It doesn't necessarily it teach us how to make a better salt shaker or something like that, but it, it might provide a new home for us if we manage to destroy our, <laughs> our planet uh, uh, through climate change. Uh, well, you got to plug the work of NASA here that the, the amount of your tax dollar that goes into NASA is, I think, less than a penny now. And the, the, one of the things that I do is, I have done a few times, is to facilitate from my background in chemistry and medical chemistry, is to facilitate using some of that technology in, in spinoffs that you get, uh, it's about a $7 in technology return on every dollar of your tax dollar invested. So mm -hmm. NASA is a, you know, you, you look at NASA, just what's usually in the media, uh, we've got three robots running around on Mars right now, and the scientists are just tickle-pink about that. But there's a lot more to NASA than doing science, space science. It's this uh, spinoffs, mm -hmm. the uh, technology spinoffs. It's a very lucrative investment for your uh, uh, your tax dollar. You got to mention that. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, the, the arts have about the same uh, ratio of uh, return, uh, uh, or at least so I'm told by people who track such things. Uh, Doug, um, who was Galileo? Um, uh, you know, for uh, several thousand years, human beings had walked upright and, and um, Ptolemy had created this system, and, and for a thousand years, I guess, people bought into that. And, uh, and then uh, here comes this one guy relatively recently in human development uh, and, uh, and said, no, I've got a different idea. Who, who was he and what, what about him allowed him to, to take such a, a risky um, stance? Um, yeah, so, you know, Galileo, uh, like, like Newton, uh, Galileo actually rose up on the shoulders of giants. So, as you mentioned, uh, we have heli uh, basically the geocentric view had, had existed for about 1,800 years. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just that they someone held a view. Uh, obviously, Ptolemy in basically about 100 AD um, bolstered the system of geocentrism. It had actually been in existence much longer. Mm -hmm. But what Ptolemy did was he actually uh, also developed an algebra or a mathematics that would describe these things called that he called epicycles that pretty accurately defined what was happening in the in the solar system. So it was really difficult to kind of break that because he actually had mm. uh, it actually developed a system of mathematics that could describe it. In addition to that, because we didn't have a really accurate way of really timing what happened in the solar system, that viewpoint existed for a very, very long time. 
Now, you had some other guys that came along uh, behind um, uh, or before Galileo, uh, ma mainly Copernicus. And then mm -hmm. Copernicus had made some really detailed uh, observations of when uh, objects would set and when they would, when they would rise and when they would set. And he made very detailed logs. He did all this without the benefit of a telescope. Mm -hmm. And based on that, he actually wrote a work um, that he published the, almost the day he died because he was afraid that if he published it before he died, there'd be a great embarrassment to his family. Uh, basically, people would hunt him down, put him in jail. So he didn't want to embarrass his, himself or his family. So he published this work uh, on the day he died. And basically, it was his treatise on heliocentrism or mm -hmm. the fact that we actually had all the objects in our solar system actually orbiting around the sun. Mm -hmm. So this was, you know, a good, uh, he died in 1543 and Galileo wasn't, uh, wasn't born until 1564. So you know, quite a number of years, I'm sorry, uh, until, uh, yeah, 1564. So quite a number of years before we have Galileo coming on the scene. But that work was there. And so what Galileo did was, was through observational astronomy, was able to prove, was able to see that, that there, was ob or there were instances in our solar system where geocentrism wouldn't hold water. Now, about, about a little bit about Galileo, um, much like Copernicus, Galileo is what we call a polymath. Galileo had a natural curiosity and he had excellence in many fields of study. So he was, he was an accomplished musician. He was accomplished in, in religion and a man of faith. He was able to draw and, 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 and create very technical drawings. He was really good about recording his observations and then designing experiments that could be repeated. And he told people how to repeat them in his works. So he could, he could literally, it wasn't just him making the observations and making a conjecture. It was other people being able to repeat his works and say, you know what? Galileo's right. So he was really one of the first people to be able to do this. And so that, that really helped him. Um, he capitalized on geometry and, and also uh, he had a few things that happened in his life that we might think of as accidents, mm -hmm. but he capitalized on those accidents. One of them was he was actually going to medical school and he just happened to jump on a, a, a lecture by someone describing uh, uh, geometry. And he was just so fascinated by geometry and trigonometry that he decided to switch his major right then and go over to mathematics, which wasn't very popular. Mathematics were not popular in the in uh, in uh, those days. Mathematicians right. were paired, were actually paid very low with respect to a philosopher. A philosopher made about a hundred times more than a than a uh, a mathematician. Then uh, he also had a, a natural desire to improve things. So he actually made money by inventing devices and equipment, but he also was able to improve equipment. And so by accident, he happened to be in Venice one day and he was interested in the telescope. He actually wasn't the inventor of the telescope. Hans mm -hmm. Lippershey had actually developed the telescope about a year earlier, but news traveled quickly. And he happened upon this, uh, the, that he actually found out that, that the Dutch were trying to import the telescope into, um, 
into uh, into Venice. Well, he kind of seized on that cap uh, that that he went to the Doge of of Venice and convinced him to hold the port entry of the ship. <laughs> so he took three days um, and developed um, a telescope based on uh, loosely based on Lepershey's um, evidence or in his writings, but he actually improved the telescope. And how he improved the telescope was, is that he actually made a telescope that gave you a correct image. In those days, they would just put two, two uh, convex lenses together and you know you'd ha- you could look through the telescope, but it was an inverted image. People didn't really like that. So Galileo actually discovered how to, cr- to build a telescope that had a corrected image. And then uh, he actually improved the power of the telescope to make it more powerful than the one that the Dutch um, were, were about to present to the Doge of, of Venice. Mm-hmm. Well, the Doge was so impressed with what Galileo did that he actually increased Galileo's salary by three times. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so yeah. he was very happy about that. And he actually developed a business making telescopes. So, uh, so he kind of seized upon that ap- opportunity. Another accident that Galileo had was that he, he was improving the telescope and he was actually looking at the top of a cathedral when the moon actually moved in front of the telescope. And that's actually how Galileo came to actually observe the moon. But he was so impressed by that that he made a really detailed map of the moon. And with that, um, that one discovery, he began to chip away at some of these um, long-held beliefs. One of them was the immutability of the of the night sky they at that before him they thought that the moon was uh was a solid sphere that there was it was complete it was perfect there are no deformations in the sphere at all mm-hmm. and with that he was actually able to see well wait a minute we actually have these looks like bays and we have seas and we have mountains and valleys and these mm-hmm. odd looking things i'm going to call you know that we now call craters and that really challenged this this idea of the immutability of the of the of the universe, and so that was really one of the first uh, things that began to challenge some of these long held beliefs, uh, literally that, that came from Al, uh, Aristotle over eighteen hundred years prior. Mm-hmm. He was also a good author, so he not only did he make these observations, he was able to put them into a book. He was able to ex- express himself. So. Uh, those are some of the things. Uh, I'll, I'll take your next question, and maybe I can maybe a little, sure. you know, get a little better. Of that. Go ahead. Well, I, I just uh, I don't know if it's quite a question, but I, I think it's fascinating that all of these things happened roughly in the same area um, of the world and roughly at the same time from the the invention of the printing press in the 1400s to um, um, Galileo to um, even uh, William Tyndale, uh, who um, translated the the Bible out of uh, Latin and into um, English, English, right? And and yeah. then Shakespeare, of course, was uh, was there doing his thing too. Uh, um, so uh, uh, there was something um, something happen uh, happening that uh, felt it made it perhaps feel possible to challenge existing orthodoxies. Oh, yeah. Um, and I guess I would ask both of you, um, is it still, uh, you know, we don't have a, uh, the, the Catholic Church is not as powerful as it was back then. It's not as all powerful as it was. And the, the states tend to 
uh, have power, um, uh, but um, is it still difficult to challenge existing orthodoxies in science? Um, um, Alan, uh, do you do you feel like that's the case, or um, uh, or no? It seems like politics is so much of everything today. If you go back to, uh, you know, in my particular field of interest in rocket science, if you go back to the around 1900, when the fundamentals were coming together, we had Robert Goddard in the United States, and we had Werner von Braun and some of those guys from Germany. Right. And von Braun, of course, you know what he accomplished. He uh, was in the Nazi uh, V2 rocket was the, the first man-made object in space. And Robert Goddard at the time was launching things in I think his aunt or his grandmother's backyard because he didn't have the support, the political support of the scientific community, of the military community, and of course von Braun did. Um, and even today there's uh, it, the politics and the money is, is the really the thing I think that you've got to make um, a justification and this is you know that this is so such a, a broad topic to is elon going to put people on mars yeah. is nasa going to put people on mars what are you going to do we're getting to where the our next big accomplishments in space are going to be crazy expensive and the politics and the money come in not so much the science versus the anti-science or the church versus the scientists but it's uh uh why do you how are you going to pay for that? Mm -hmm. uh, what's the return on investment going to be? And I think those are the big, uh, uh, the big battles that you fight. Even the little internal ones, like I tell you, like I told you earlier, if if uh, JPL has uh, so much money and they can pick a mission to here or here, you're going to have scientists on both sides of the argument. Scientists within JPL arguing with each other over money to build one spacecraft, and they can't build two. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's the, the frustrating thing. That's uh, uh, it's frustratingly slow now. The space station, it seems to me, has been a, a really good example of collaboration between nation states. Um, is that the model for the future? Uh, I don't know, Doug. What do you think? <laughs> well, I, th I think that if we're going to accomplish things as a species, as the human species, we need to begin looking at one another as you know collaborative entities rather than separating one another and trying to separate one another based on our diversities we need to become more inclusive when we band together as people mm -hmm. and we kind of slough off these our political differences and just kind of uh, concentrate on promoting our abilities you can we can do great things so just look at the jwst you know, the JWST Space Telescope, uh, which is now the kind of the, 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 uh, uh, the evol uh, evolutionary end of the telescope, and hopefully there will be more after that, but it's now the, the pinnacle of, of that, all that evolution that's happened, you know, uh, over the last 400 plus years, you know, uh, it was put together by, you know, a multi-corporate uh, team, of course, NASA, JPL, did a lot of work, but we had our friends over in the EU. Uh, we had, especially with the French and the, uh, the delivery system on the Ariane rocket, they did a lot of research mm -hmm. just to make sure that they could deliver that package into space efficiently. And even some of the, the, the prior delays we had just before launch, 
they were still kind of working out some of the some of the the delivery issues that they were having with compression of atmosphere within the fairing and everything to make sure that whatever they did and how they delivered it, we were not going to damage the telescope. And we did that as a nation, as multiple nations, all all uh, unified for one purpose. And of course, I know you guys have been following how well that the the telescope is performing. It's just it, we haven't even gotten one. Uh, one of the images that they intend to produce with the scope, but already it is outperforming uh, our greatest expectations mm -hmm. uh, for that for that uh, that scope. So it's it's really when we band together as people, uh, and we kind of again lay aside our differences, whether it's based on gender, race, whatever, um, you know, uh, we actually can excel as a, as a, as as humanity. Or, or, or arbitrary lines drawn on a map. Uh, exactly. Uh, exactly. One, one of the big ones too. Uh, well, gentlemen, that's uh, that's great. It's uh, just as you say, touching the tip of the iceberg on on this subject. But uh, it is uh, fascinating to me that that one um, uh, one man, you know, uh, set in motion um, so much that has come after it, and um, oh yeah, one one shudders to think. Uh, if that one person had uh, stepped in front of a donkey cart uh, the day before he, <laughs> he looked, in the, looked into the stage, space, you know, where we might be. On the other hand, uh, perhaps uh, we also can have faith that the, the next human being would have stepped up uh, in his stead had he not been able to do it. So, uh, so thank you for being with us today on this um, podcast. And I will invite you and invite our audience to come and see our production of the Life of Galileo. This is a play by Bertolt Brecht. Uh, it is translated uh, into English by David Edgar, and uh, it plays at the Dorothea Dix Park uh, in Raleigh, uh, April 7th through 24th, um, Under the Stars. Um, tickets are available at burningcold.org. And uh, again, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today. Hey, one, one more little thing to mention. It's a connection between our world and yours, the arts and, and yes. music. Yes. Is, uh, you know the Queen song, Bohemian Rhapsody? I know oh, it yeah. will. Well, you know, there's the lines of Galileo, Galileo, Galileo. You uh -huh. know? And I was looking at the lyrics today, and I was like, I don't make a connection. Why did they sing Galileo's name several times? But the connection between, well, that's Galileo. Uh, you might know, most people seem totally shocked that the guitarist for Queen is Dr. Brian May. Brian astrophysicist. May. He's an astrophysicist, has worked with NASA and JPL. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the best guitarists in rock music and uh, yeah. a really respected and accomplished astrophysicist, too. There's, uh, there's often connections between music and uh, mathematics and oh, yeah. science. Uh, Galileo himself was, was an accomplished musician, as was his family. You know, so it's, it's, uh, you, 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 I think we did make a mistake, I think, in, in education where we separated music away from mathematics and arts. And those all, they're all interconnected. And uh, we, we've got to get back to that. Well, that's a that's a very uh, poignant uh, thought. I, I had not uh, thought of it quite in those terms, but um, but yeah, there's another place where we divide people up in ways that maybe we shouldn't uh, shouldn't be doing. Okay, we'll uh, wrap it up uh, today, then, gentlemen. Thank you very much, and uh, I look forward to perhaps seeing you down the road. Awesome. I look forward to seeing your uh, show. Your play. Yeah.
Come and get to come and uh, we'll uh, reserve tickets for you. If you want to shoot me an email, we'll get you some tickets for the show uh, on the house. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening. Our production of The Life of Galileo will run from April 7th through the 24th. For tickets and information, visit us at burningcoal.org or give us a call at 919-834-4001. Burning Coal's production of The Life of Galileo is sponsored by The Classical Station. Listen at 89.7 FM or online at theclassicalstation.org.